Hey, good morning, everybody. I always say that because we recorded in the morning, and it's not the. It's by the time you watch this, good whatever time of the day it happens to be when you're watching it. Uh, this is our in the kitchen video, and um, I am Darren. I'm one of the shepherds on staff at Fullerton Free. Uh, the in the kitchen video is uh, is designed to sort of equip and prepare uh, some of you to do a home study or home teaching in your own homes. If in the midst of the quarantine and coronavirus stuff, you're feeling a little fatigued of watching church on TV, or if you don't feel like you can make it up to our Sunday evening worship service and you want to just do a study in your home, this is meant to put a couple of tools in the tool belt to, to prepare you for that. This morning we're going to be looking at Daniel 1, uh, which is the, the text that we will be studying on Sunday. And uh, with me this morning are Christina Mirandola, who's one of our shepherds on staff, and Kristen Hartman, who uh, teaches and leads in our women's ministry and is plugged into our teaching team at church and kind of serves anywhere and everywhere. You've probably seen her all over the place. And Mitch Fierro, who's a shepherd on staff as well, and part of the teaching team, etc., etc., teaching and all kinds of wonderful stuff. So we got a great team today. Uh, what you will see as we jump into this Daniel series um, is that we're going to take a chapter at a time. So we're studying the narrative portions initially in our Sunday services, and we're going to do Daniel 1, Daniel 2, Daniel 3. So some of these are long chunks. I'm going to read Daniel 1 this morning. I'll tell you really quickly uh, sort of what I'm thinking as far as a teaching path. And then we're just going to kind of talk about it. And as always, we're going to try and wrap it up in about 20 minutes. We'll see how we do here. So let's read Daniel chapter 1 together. Um, it says, In the third year of the reign of king, uh, Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of, Ju king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him... Sorry, my computer just skipped ahead. One second, I'm going back. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who were of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. And at the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. 
Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. So, um, the, the trick when we're studying a text like this that's familiar is you come into it with presuppositions, right? You've heard the children's story, or you've seen the veggie tales, or you've watched the puppet show, or whatever, and you, and you go, yeah, 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 I know, I know what's happening here. So it always behooves us, especially if we're going to teach this, to go back and actually look at what the text says. Because you don't want to just trust your memory of the children's story or whatever. There are great things in, in here that sometimes gets missed when you're trying to boil it down into a five-minute children's message or into a cartoon or something. So, um, as I teach this chapter one, I, I'm going to be setting up uh, kind of the overarching goal with the whole series. The reason why we're choosing Daniel is that I think Daniel is probably the best example in all the scripture of a of a narrative that shows how God's people can have an impact on a secular culture without fighting the culture, right? There are places here, and we even see it in this text, there are places here where Daniel and his friends resist um, the paganism or resist the wickedness. And, and actually, in this text, they don't even give us real clarity. We'll see that more down the road. In this text, we don't know exactly why Daniel doesn't want to eat the king's food. It might have been because of the kind of food it was. It might have been because it had been used in idol worship. There are a lot of reasons that may have been the way it was prepared. But for whatever reason, Daniel and his friends feel very strongly about the fact that they shouldn't eat this food. And so they ask, can we do this a different way? It's not a fight. It's not a rebellion. It's not an overthrow. They're not standing on the table shouting and, and revolting. I think, um, for me, the, this idea of being citizens of distinction, which is the subtitle for our series, is the recognition that as disciples of Christ, we're called to be great citizens of our community. Whatever city we're in, whatever country we live in, that God has placed us in that location to, to make a distinct difference in our world. And a lot of times we think that the way that, I mean, there's, there's kind of two different camps here. There's the camp that goes, oh, well, you know, when in Rome, you become like the Romans and you just sort of blend in and wherever you find yourself, you just become like the world around you. And those are people who, I mean, and actually the church is sometimes guilty of this too. The church is guilty of kind of losing sight of the things that make us citizens of the kingdom of God and, and ambassadors. But then if the pendulum swings the whole other way, the, the opposite of the mindset that says when in Rome is the mindset that says we have to fight the culture all the time, you know, and everything that, that is happening in our world is of the devil and it's all wicked and it all needs to be fought against. And there's this kind of us and them mentality that says everybody who's not part of our church is evil and wicked and they're all out to get us and the culture's plotting and they're striving to try and overthrow the church and light all our Bibles on fire and whatever. And it can turn into this kind of like conspiracy theory, like us against them sort of mentality. Well, what I think Daniel shows really clearly, and Daniel 1 is a good example of this. We're going to see it on every one of these chapters, is that Daniel neither conforms to the Babylonian culture, nor does he fight against the Babylonian culture. What he does here is he faithfully discerns the things to say yes to and the things to say no to. I think it's very interesting all four of these guys in this story, they have uh, God-fearing Hebrew names. And when they come in here, uh, the Babylonians give them pagan, actually kind of like bad pagan names. And we don't see them argue about those names. We don't see them go, no, you'll never call, my name is Daniel, and you'll never call me Belteshazzar, I'd rather die than me, you know. It's like, no, they go along with some of this stuff. 
But there are other places here where they go, you know what? We, it says in verse 8, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself. He was convicted that eating that food would be a defilement. And so, again, it's not a fight. It's not a battle. It's an ask. He goes to the chief of the eunuchs and asks him to, to allow him not to defile himself. I like, I like the way in which there's this prophetic engagement, but it isn't, it isn't, uh, it's not a shaking fist. So that will be the bulk of my message is going, how do we, how do we find the through line that isn't uh, fighting the culture, but also isn't conforming to the culture? How do we find that middle ground, which is prophetic engagement makes a difference? Um, I also love in this text, the fact that, um, that, that everything that's happening, I think sometimes when really bad things are happening in our lives, we think, oh, God's God's abandoned us, or God is indifferent, or God is, I mean, you might be feeling that now in the midst of the uh, the pandemic stuff, like, where is God in all of this? It's really clear from, from the very beginning that they're in this hard circumstance they're in because God gave them over to their enemies. You know, it's a, it's a consequence of their actions, but God's not absent. He's not absconded here. God's in it with them. So there's also a great reminder to go, even in the midst of difficulty and trying to navigate these cultural impacts, like God's with us. And even in the midst of even if we're, in, if we're suffering the consequences of our own sinful actions, which the Hebrews were in this case, um, God's not gone. You know, like he's not sort of washed his hands of the whole thing. He's active and engaged and, and they are still dependent on him, even in the midst of their, punishment kind of you know so okay so there's my quick or relatively quick synopsis of uh, where i'm planning to go there's a lot of other little nuancey things but what are the questions you guys have of the text what are the things you love about the text what are things that you would look at our audience at home and say oh man as you're studying this and teaching it don't miss this there's really something interesting or whatever go let's go with that what do you guys got yeah well i would just jump off what you just said I think when I was reading this through yesterday, one of the things that stood out to me is how many times it says God gave in this first chapter. So like it happens in verse two, the Lord gave Jehoiakim into the hands of the Babylonians. It happens in verse nine, God gave Daniel favor and, com and compassion. It happens again in verse 17, that God gave the four, the four guys learning and skill. And so I think like backing up from that, from what the little narrative that's happening right here and thinking about the vast story of, you know, God's people being taken into captivity into a seemingly like terrible situation that if I put myself in their shoes would feel horrible, like so horrible. Right. And to the point where they think God abandoned them. And now you've got these four guys living in a pagan society, but then you see so actively God gave, God gave, God gave that God is moving in a very like profound and intentional way. And, that he's not absent from them like and he's working even to the point where he's giving these four guys favor to make a difference in this kingdom you know so like i don't know i think that i think i would just want to sit with that and think what does that mean for how we're living right now and the ways that it's easy for us to think that god is absent or god's not moving or evil is dominating our world or like whatever you know you know the church is being persecuted and we're losing our footing or whatever those things are easy to start to feel but to think about the sovereignty of God and the wisdom of God and how God is moving and God is giving his people favor God is moving in specific ways like he's not he's not gone and it was reminding me of in Romans 11 like I love the, the end of that chapter because that chapter is talking about the wisdom of God 
in weaving together the story of the Jews and the Gentiles for salvation. That's an amazing chapter. I would like go read it. But at the end, it just talks about like, oh my gosh, like we cannot fathom the wisdom of God, how the narrative that God writes throughout human history is so much more creative and vast and amazing than we can even see in our like moment to moment living. So it just like brings a lot of peace, you know, like we can have total peace because of who God is, not because of our circumstance or even the time that we live or like the time in history we're in or whatever. So it's interesting, even like the sacred items from the temple get taken and put into into pagan storehouses. Right. And you think like, oh, clearly the devil has won, you know, like that clearly is satanic victory. But it says that, no, God gave those things over. And if Jeff were here, he would certainly want to point us back to the fact that he believes, and I, I think there's some there's some good reasoning to this, that when the wise men who come from the east, having heard the prophecies of Daniel, return to worship the boy Jesus in Egypt, that they bring back some of the, it's Jeff's understanding that some of these things that were taken, these holy items, may have been part of what was returned to the king of the universe when they came back. So... That God, yeah, he gave them over, but but then these things will end up circling back around. Jeff, I, I got your back. <laughs> what else? I think that giving over is important, too, of realizing that he was giving them over because of their failure as the people of God. Um, if you look back, this story is rooted kind of in First, Second Kings 24. I mean, the people are not following God well. That This is punishment. And yet Daniel and his friends know the truth and are willing in an act of punishment to remain faithful. Like, I love your pointing out all the God gaves because a lot of those, if you look at him, he's not giving actually to his people. He's giving his people or other things to who would be perceived as the enemy. Right. So even in the moment, like I can't imagine in this kind of, cause time's compressed in our reading of the story. This is happening over up to three years. Right. And so what must that have felt like for Daniel and those people who are trying to do the right thing and do it in the, the humble way, do it in the non-confrontational way to some degree. And yet it might not have felt like God was giving them anything because it's it's not really for their direct benefit in a way. Right. Um, and yet they remain faithful, which I think is in this season such a challenge. Like It can feel like we're trying so hard to do what we think is the right thing and is God giving us favor? Is he giving it to us? Is he giving it to our culture? Like it, it can be hard to know in the moment, which I think it must have been for them. Right. And yet, looking back, like it was so evident God's hand was all over this. Well, I think we always assume that we're in the right and that anything bad that's happening must be because of the wickedness of other people. Um, and, and we don't always stop to think like, oh, wait, am I dealing with some of the things I'm dealing with? Not because of some sort of um, external oppression or external attack am i dealing with some of the things i'm dealing with because god's trying to refine me or he's trying to change the church like i don't know if in the midst of all of this stuff with covid and racial unrest and whatever else if the church has sort of adequately said is this a moment where god is trying to shake up the basket you know for us are there things about who we are and what we do and our routines and our patterns that need to just be canceled for a season so that we can rebuild fresh. We've had conversations even recently about what church will look like when we come back from all of this. Are there things that should be different than they were before we came in? This is a time for us to assess that because some of what we're dealing with may be God trying to refine us. Certainly is God trying to refine us, 
And it isn't just, you know, the evils in the world trying to attack the church, but it could very well be God going, I actually want to polish the church a little because I love her, you know, and I want to take care of her. You talked about that in your message a couple of weeks ago, that we sometimes make the mistake, this is one of my favorite things you preached a couple weeks ago, that, that we sometimes make the mistake of reading uh, the Exodus story only thinking of ourselves as the Hebrews who are running away, and we don't see ourselves as the Egyptians. And sometimes we got to read the text and go, oh, I'm actually the bad guy in the story. You know, that, Not that we always are, but there is some value to going, wait a second, do I need to change? Like, Is there room for me to, to look at the places where maybe I'm the oppressor or whatever? So, Yeah. Yeah. That was you that preached that, right? I, I don't think so. No, it I'm was too. To no, like, it definitely was. That? You did. It was you. Maybe. It was you. Or maybe it was Zach. Good job, Zach. Maybe it was Zach. Yeah. Good job. Well, I like, I like your preaching too. It's okay. Sheesh. I'm just going to sit here. I think, like, I think that we need to take the opportunity to stop and to think. Like, this is the culture that we live in today. And how does Daniel's story challenge us to live in the culture we're in and walk with this type of discernment. So like, I think what I'm trying to say is it's easy to read this chapter and think like, Oh, this is cool. Daniel's living in Babylon and look at the discernment he's using. Look how he's like giving, he's having leniency in some areas and like standing firm in other areas and then to just walk away from it. But like, if we stop and think, okay, but let me think about the context I'm in. How do these things now apply to my life? That's a huge conversation. And that's a great conversation. Like, I think that's a conversation have with your families this week and sit down and start talking about those things. Like, this is, you know, the things happening at school. This is the things happening at work. Like, this is the things happening in the media. And how do I walk with discernment in those things? And instead of just shove them all away because they feel like maybe God's absent from them, walk with the discernment of Daniel and think, this is the time and the place that God's placed us to live. So how do we live in this time, in this place, in this state, right. you know, in this culture as believers and share the light of Christ without being totally removed from the place that we live. So, yeah. I was saying, I, 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 like, there's a tension in that, right? Because I think any of these stories in Daniel can be taught as one story. Where we're going to be Christians and we're going to hold on to what we believe and this is we're going to stand firm. Or we're going to be people that are in culture we're going to bless the culture around us. And so there's this tension of living in the two that you're talking about, discerning. Like, how do I discern what I'm going to hold on to and what is sacred? And also, how am I going to bless the world around me? And I, I don't think that's a tension that we talk about right. very often because we want to lean towards one or the other. And I think culture is just evidence of that right now where people are, are leaning in this. And so I, I just wonder, I ask myself the question, how was Daniel and his friends discerning this? I mean, were they... When they were together, were they in a circle talking about, okay, this is the state. We're not going to eat the king's food. Or, no, we're, we're going to interpret this dream. Um, because I, don't, I, I, want, I want to live well right. in that tension. Yeah. It feels like part of that is a, kind of akin to what we talked about with regard to prayer this last week. Um, or, not, it'll be two weeks ago when this video plays. But when, um, when we talked about prayer at the end of James, the idea there is that sometimes God has said things really clearly. You know, and it's like, this is the way I want you to live. And in those moments, we can pray in alignment with that and know that our prayers will be answered. But then there are times where we don't, God hasn't specifically spoken about a thing. And so then you're having to go, well, what's the character of God like? How has he revealed himself? What has he said his purpose is for me? Here's my best guess uh, based on all the information that I know about what the path forward looks like. 
or what to pray. And then you sometimes find out later whether you were right or wrong. As a fallible human being, sometimes we get that wrong. But there is, I love the idea of having that conversation around a, a family table or with community, you know, to go, I'm trying to discern in line with the character of God and the revealed will of God and what he said in his word, like, what's the right path forward here? Um, to do that in community is really, that's a really powerful picture and important. But it also seems like it advocates for a rootedness in his word again. Yeah. You know? Well, and I think we see that even in how Daniel asks, right? Because he says, test us for this period of time, and then you determine. Right. Like, he's not saying, like, I guarantee right. you're going to, like, it seems like there's a humility mm-hmm. that maybe even he doesn't know yeah, what the outcome right. is. Like, that, his questioning and his saying, like, can we try this? might even be part of the discerning process. Like I think feels right. I feel yeah, like I need yeah. to have a firm answer so often. And sometimes it's no, I need to like take the step. And the first step might be like, let's try and see where the answer is. And I think there's just such encouragement in this. Like they're so young. I mean, they're so young. And so I think that's just such an encouragement that all of us can still be in process and discerning, but no one's excluded. Right. Yeah. Like the youngest among us could be the ones who have the insight and have the ability to discern and not to discount like the youth. I mean, these are youths. That's significant. I like the fact that he makes a concession here because of the chief of the eunuch's fears. That feels compassionate to me. He says first, hey, we'd like to not defile ourselves with the king's food. And the chief of the eunuchs is like, dude, I'm responsible to the king. And if you guys don't eat this food and I I take you before him, he's going to kill me. And instead of being like, what do we care about you? You're our captor. Like, you're a bad person. We don't care if your head gets chopped off. Instead of doing that, he goes, okay, well, how about this test, right? Let's do, and that even the idea of the test is a, it's almost a concession that's made in submission to God, in alignment with who God is and what he might be doing. But it is also an act of compassion toward the chief of the eunuchs who's scared. I like the fact that in the midst of everything else he's trying to do, he's thinking about how to build rapport with the chief of the eunuchs, his captor, you know, that's pretty cool too. I don't, I don't know that we spend enough time as Christians thinking about how to build rapport um, with, with people who disagree with us or people, you know, who, who would see things completely different. It's funny. I, that's one of the things I enjoy most about Daniel. Cause that's, that's how I'm always thinking. Like how, how do I build relationship? How do I earn relational equity with these people? Not just that I might tell them the gospel, but that when I actually, do talk about Jesus, it means something to them because I've invested in them and I know about their lives. And and Daniel does that. Like Daniel is given a place of influence. Like he's given the ability to be around some of the youngest and brightest people. Um, and then he he leverages this place of influence, one to hold on to his own spiritual um his own spiritual practices and his own spiritual the the ways he wanted to remain close to God. But at the same time he knew when to I don't want to say concede, but he knew when it was okay to embrace their culture, yeah, yeah. to win that equity with them. And we see that because he, he's given influence throughout, not just in this story, but in the other stories we're going to see. Um, he's, he's always given a place to speak wisdom and truth. And even though his words always weren't what he probably wanted to hear, they still valued what he had to say mm-hmm. because of the influence that he had. And he'll gain, over time, he'll gain the opportunity to say harsher things, yeah. heavier things. <clears throat> but he doesn't start with the heavy and the harsh. He starts with humility and compassion, and yeah. uh, you know, and he he builds a platform of demonstrable faith 
on which to have a, a stronger prophetic engagement down the road. So, yeah. all right, well, we're, we're out of time. I know this thing always goes really quick. There's so much more. We're hoping that you, uh, we probably should mention, it'll be important for you to point out to your, your kids, if you're teaching this at home, that the Bible clearly teaches here that vegetables make you fat. So we want to make sure kids just dodge the broccoli, dodge the, you know, the asparagus. It's not doing you any favors. Well, veganism is good. Uh, no, because it says right here, they ate just vegetables and they were fatter than all the other people. That can't be good. That can't be good. I'm not a vegan. <laughs> just be I'm careful. Sure That's all. So this is true for you. <clears throat> all right. Well, thanks very much for listening. Thanks very much uh, to all of you for contributing and, and being an active part of this ongoing process. God bless you. And we will, uh, we'll see you on Sunday. All right. Bye.